Welcome to the Values at Sea podcast. This podcast was developed with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council via the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership, and it was produced by Sonia Levy and Ellis Jones. The purpose of this podcast is to give you an insight into some of the work that was presented at the Values at Sea workshop held at the end of April 2023 at the University of Exeter in the UK. The workshop brought together people from marine science with people from science studies, which includes philosophy, history, and the social studies of science, as well as lots of other disciplines. Each of the episodes features an interview with the person who attended the workshop, discussing their work and their relationship with the ocean in a bit more depth with me and Sonia. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Pamela Bicken, a researcher at the University of Exeter, interested in how people develop a sense of marine identity and who is involved in local government and policymaking related to marine environments. The interview is also punctuated by underwater recording I made in Northern Norway, featuring orca hunting in the busy fjords of Kromso. As well as the orca, you'll be able to hear boat noises from both tourist activity and fishing. Thank you so much, Pamela, again. So can you tell us who you are and what you do? I'm uh, Dr. Pamela Buchan, and I'm a marine social scientist at Exeter University. I research mostly marine citizenship, which is about people being citizens and considering the sea, but also having um, like access to have a say on marine decision-making. But I, because I am interdisciplinary, really interested in this kind of full breadth of uh, kind of marine governance and how people have a say overall. So not just um, sort of specific kinds of decision-making, but the whole kind of way that society uses the ocean as well. According to you, what is the ocean and how does it manifest itself in your research? So I've been doing some research this year looking at marine identity with researchers and practitioners from different countries. And we had such a big debate about the language and using the word marine or using the word ocean because it means different things to different people. So to me, I would take a really holistic view and the ocean is kind of everything that is uh, seas, or oceans or estuaries or, you know, everything kind of the coastal fringe that's influenced by the movement of tide and, and salinity and all those sorts of things. But uh, certainly for some people, the ocean is something else and the ocean is oceans. So the Atlantic or the Pacific, and they don't, they don't feel like that encompasses all of those different environments. So for, yeah, for me, I'm pretty inclusive and trying, I'll, I'll include everything. If we were to say my research is about transformation of the human ocean relationship, then uh, it is, it's fundamental. So both in terms of how humans use it and how we decide how to use it, but also in terms of its importance to us as people and the kinds of relationships that we have, it, the attachments and emotions and our kind of cultural understandings of it. That's all part of this mix of how people feel about the ocean and then why they will choose to take action for it. So it is absolutely, you know, it is the, the foundation, I guess, of 
of everything that I research, really. What sensory element is most important to you when apprehending oceanic environment? Oh, you can't pick one. <laughs> that, that's that's to do a disservice to the marine environment because the whole point of it is that it's all the senses. Um, so, yeah, everything. I mean, I, again, I, that's literally come through in my research is about the sensory experience of the ocean and its importance for people and for how we... Uh, develop all the bonds and attachments and feelings that we have for the ocean. So um, the whole reason the ocean is special is because it's kind of four-dimensional and dynamic and we can not only see it and enjoy how that how it looks and how it changes when we're looking at it, but also uh, we can feel it and we can be right inside it and be moved around by it, touching it all over at the same time. And there's no other natural environment that has that. So I, I refuse to take one kind of sensory piece of the slice of the sensory pie because there's uh, that's the whole kind of amazing thing about the ocean is is all of it together. Does the ocean forces you to think or do research differently? And if so, how can you give us an example? So the ocean is uh, the interconnection and change of the ocean means you have to do different research. So sometimes academics will talk about kind of the fluidity of their research. Um, you can't, in my opinion, it's really hard to, to look at look at the ocean and learn from it through research in a in a static way or in a kind of bounded way even if you try and draw a line around I'm going to study this piece of the ocean or I'm going to think about the ocean at this particular time or you know any kind of boundary you try and put on it is never it's never firm and even if that's the scope you're trying to to look at there's always going to be influence from from outside because of its interconnectedness so i'm interdisciplinary i look at all the different perspectives that i possibly can because i think that's the the most effective way to understand the marine environment um to kind of get that holistic and and the interrelationships of different things about it i don't think it's i think it's much harder to do a kind of narrow way of thinking when you're researching the ocean so yeah that definitely changes that approach the scope of my PhD research was kind of big. <laughs> so, so I wanted to know um, why do some people take action for the sea when others don't? So I investigated the people that take action for the sea and tried to look at why that was. But in order to do that, I had to look at things around uh, you know, individual people, what were their personalities like and their values and so on. And then how they interacted with the marine environment, what their feelings were to the marine environment. And that is, I mean, that, that's just really different for different people, how they come to connect with the ocean and what that, where that comes from and what that kind of means to them. And so I looked at all different kinds of sort of relationships to the ocean as a place. And then I looked at all of the structural things around it in terms of um, like governance or 
access to mean decision making, which is also so varied. Um, and so that kind of huge big picture, trying to kind of pull together that variety and breadth around the human ocean relationship to understand this one thing of why do some people, why do some people want to take action? Uh, and I could not have got the findings that I got without taking that really big view. Any small slice of that would have just not been not been enough not have got the whole picture do you think the ocean the way it is understood and studied has shifted throughout your career throughout your life and what do you think have been the drivers of those changes? So I did marine biology at university back in 1998 and loads of different drivers and loads of different ways it's changed. So marine social science, this is a huge change that's been in the past maybe five or six years as a, as a developing field, recognizing that marine biology doesn't um, go into the sort of social aspects, which in fact are the basis of all of the impacts that we have on the ocean. It's a social issue, not a biological one. We need the biological data and physical data to understand things, but um, it is ultimately a social issue. And that has been a really big change. Um, when I did my first degree, public understanding of science was the sort of main narrative around social um, engagement with the ocean. So Although that that goes back to like the 1980s and the Bodmer Report, I think it was called, being back into the depths of my brain there. But and that was about um, scientific literacy and and education and, and so on, and how it was really important for people to be informed decision makers in a more technocratic social way of doing things, which is absolutely correct. Uh, but that was really one way and you know kind of education focused, and that has changed a lot. So I mean, obviously that goes all the way through science, but but fits through marine engagement and marine projects and so on as well. Uh, so that that's really changed as well. There's so much more thought about the nuances of social justice and the different uh, impacts of decisions on people as well as on the sea. So that has yeah, that's been that's been really big. We've definitely moved from. Marine scientists are about swimming with dolphins or going to Antarctica to, you know, a, a lot more, a lot more nuance and a lot of breadth around what we're trying to understand. And, and I think uh, the, the focus on urgent action as well, that's, that's definitely increased because of climate emergency and uh, increased knowledge around how the ocean plays its role within climate regulation and so on. I, that just, I think there's just been huge acceleration in that. So that's made marine research but particularly marine social research even more you know really pressing to try and get to get findings that can be applied as well into policy and practice According to your experiences and work, what is missing for a more encompassing understanding of oceanic world, so both ecologically and socially? I think way more interdisciplinary research, but I, I'm biased because you do need specific stuff as well to help get the, uh, you know, more fine detailed understanding of things. But I think um, 
So I have a bugbear that I've had for a long time moving from natural to social science, which is about natural scientists not being taught um, epistemology, being taught different ways of knowing. And uh, yeah, I say this as having been a natural scientist for quite, quite a few years before I moved uh, across. And you just don't get taught that there's other ways of understanding things that, that, this, that are what's called a positivist approach to science. You don't get taught that that's what you're doing. You just, it just is. Whereas if you're in social science, that it's the opposite. You know, there are so many different theoretical ways of how do we know things and where do things come from, um, that that can be too introverted for practical action. So there's a there's a sweet spot between where you can um, sort of recognise the complexity and the nuance and the, the way different things interact with each other. And that what you, you know, one way of looking at something will give you an answer, but it isn't necessarily the whole answer. So I, I would really love for natural scientists to have a little bit of social science training so that they can be more um, sympathetic to what can feel to a natural scientist as like an excuse, a shoddy excuse over somebody's biased values and we shouldn't be thinking about that stuff. So that's quite a, that's a big gap, I think, because to bridge that natural science and social science evidence space for practical action and for policy change and so on to be able to bridge that you need to be able to understand each other um, and it can be quite hard sometimes if people have been long trained in one field to sort of understand why the other way of looking at things is is useful and valid and legitimate that's a big thing in your research what are the main issues you are grappling with? The really big issue is the transformation of the human-ocean relationship. So it's been quite handy for my area of research that the UN Ocean Decade started uh, last year, and that has 10 challenges, and challenge 10 is transformation of humanity's relationship with the ocean. And if you want to see a sustainable future, it's all, all, all people problems. To me, challenge 10 should be challenge one. It's It's... It's the biggest and the hardest to change culture and, and change how people work. But that that's that's what my work responds to um, as much as it's as much as I can, which is a drop in the ocean of, of, of what's needed to uh, meet that challenge. But that's definitely the space that I'm working in. What do you think the ocean wants or what do you think it is becoming or at least the aquatic environment you study and what do you want for the ocean? There's a growing narrative around giving citizen status to natural environments or whether natural environments can be classed as a stakeholder in decision making and I have really mixed thoughts. I've read quite a bit on it and I just I still don't know what I think because to, for that to happen, somehow there has to be an understanding of what it wants. And I, I just don't think we can know. And I, I, I guess because it is an ecosystem of lots of different things, they all want different things. Mostly they want to survive, but mostly survival depends on some something else not surviving. But that's how we work. What does the ocean want? I don't know. And sometimes it's it's our values that are put on it if we're thinking about where it should go it, it's our values that it shouldn't change or that it's wrong now or I mean it, you can look at it scientifically and say 
it has changed because of the impacts of humans. But to say that that change is bad is a, a moral position. Now I really do sound like a scientist, but I don't think we can objectively have an understanding of to answer that question. That baby is too big an answer. But are you asking, what do I want for the ocean? Um, and that's also quite hard. Uh, I would like it to be. I don't know, because when you when you think about kind of ocean recovery and, and so on, we're talking about taking it, trying to take it back in time to a time where we were not causing so much damage. And when is that point in time? That's, you know, that's a. I, I think I don't have a, a clear idea of what I want for it, but I think what I want for it is a kind of sense of justice. So that it's considered an easier and more accessible proxy for that is to look at human social justice and to think about what humans need in each generations. And that I think is the basis really of the sustainability and development goals and, and so on. So I think that works as a proxy for what do I want? I want people who we have control over and can talk to and can understand to have fairness. And I think that would, if that was done well, that would have benefits for not just the ocean, but all, all natural environments. But I, I want better governance for the ocean. Well, I think it's a really important time for the ocean. I think there is, um, it's growing in kind of political recognition that it's important for climate change, which we already have a big, a big whole thing about. But we have a lot of, and this is what I study, a lot of romantic and strongly held views about what the ocean is and what it should be and what it means to us as, as different people in different communities and different places. Um, and I think there's a lot of folks, I think it's becoming the centre of attention a bit, which is great. Let's make it the centre of attention and really think about it. And because the blue economy is at a sort of, the sort of low end of the exponential growth curve, it's, it's getting ready to launch off and that comes with so many environmental and social risks. So I think it's really important that it becomes the centre of attention right now so that we can do our best when that, that development's happening to do it in a way that um, is just and thinks about sustainability. Yeah, becoming more seen. How can we affect those changes what is impeding those changes and what scales should we focus on? That is where I work. So how do we affect that change? The answer is all the scales, because you can't affect the change without all scales being involved. So um, I think a lot about the kind of think global, act local message that, that gets put through, which recognises that people have a certain locus of control in their life and that it can be disempowering to look at the scale of environmental um, conditions and fear work on, um, which is why one of the things in my work is really focused on empowerment of individual people. So not in terms of not doing those kinds of pro-environmental behaviours, that's also useful, um, but in terms of who they are as people in society and having more power in society and the ocean and marine environment being part of their kind of like schema of understanding about what their responsibility is. So um, where people have access to, you know, democracy or other kinds of processes and they get to have a say in it to, to be using that, to, to be heard and to come together and talk to each other. So um, in my work, when I talk about marine citizenship, I talk about like depth of marine citizenship. 
and deeper marine citizenship is when actions are more public. So people are more vulnerable when they're doing their actions. It's not secretly done in private, but it's, you know, pinning their colours to their chest and, and so on. And also when it's more about the social scale of impacts, not just a person's individual impact on the marine environment, but recognising the sort of structural barriers to, to change that individuals or communities face because of how things are arranged around them. So that, that kind of grassroots upwards flow is really important to create pressure at the bigger scales where actually a lot of the real power sits in terms of actually changing legislation, changing laws, setting different kinds of regulation over things, that big decision-making. And that obviously feeds right up to, to international um, decision-making. But the other thing, as well as kind of giving that power, it also gives legitimacy to decision-makers who want to act, who might feel afraid to act or you know, they'll lose their seat because this isn't popular or, you know, or, or whatever it is that, that it's a it's a it's a relationship between decision makers and people, at least in a democracy it is. And um, and so that, you know, we have to tap into all those different levels. And then the the other thing that I think about a lot is that everybody is a marine citizen or could be a marine citizen. Everybody has a locus of control. And for some that might be what they do, you know, when they buy stuff. Or where they go or who they talk to but for some people they are a ceo of a multinational corporation or a, you know a, a national leader or an international you know within an international decision making body so people's locus of control is not equal um but everybody brings their values to the things that they do so that's why it is still important to look in a individual relationship with the ocean and individual understandings of it this is why I do the what is the psychology and what is the relationship with the ocean and also what are the structures around decision making and how can they be made um, more effective and, and more socially just every scale. And where um, a piece of action is wanted by some, if they're not the majority, it's always going to be harder to, to make that case. So just the kind of shared and that that's why people think so much about public engagement and talking to others and campaigning and lobbying it's about trying to raise the the quantity of people who who think in that way so that that creates a bit more momentum and power behind that position um but also i, I mean related to what i said in terms of um permission and legitimacy so for decision making to have legitimacy and there can be a perception that um radical decisions can't be taken because they'll be upset and sometimes that might be the case but sometimes it's that people have never really been asked and also there's the flip side which is where a radical decision might be taken but nobody was asked and then there's an outcry about it because it's done in a way that uh, isn't sensitive to you know a, a range of needs or hasn't been properly articulated or co-produced or, or whatever and that makes people then resistant to that change um, so the power of the citizenry can work against um, transition if it's not done in a in an effective and fair way. Um, uh, yeah, and then there's the whole thing of like global inequality because that makes it really difficult on the global stage when you're thinking about who should and shouldn't do what. There's a there's a lot of political um, history and issues that that feed into that that prevent change you know the whole geopolitics level of things that is that's pretty hard to navigate
according to your research, how are human-ocean relationships transforming? There's lots of work now, research looking at human-ocean relationships in different ways, sense of place research, anthropological research, uh, natural capital, ecosystem services. There's lots of framings to try and understand what the relationships are. Are they changing? I don't know that they are changing yet. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a really tricky, that's a really tricky question. I'm thinking, are they too? Because, you know, we're working on it, but I don't know. There's the risks for, I mean, the big scale, the risks from things like the blue economy. We, we, there's campaigns that it should be a sustainable and equitable blue economy. There's a great opportunity to be at the at the start of this exponential growth curve and to do something about change the way we do that. So it isn't just repeating with all the knowledge that we have, the same mistakes that we've made on land that were made in some cases before we had knowledge, not always since. But um, I think there's a lot of interest in how we will make them change. But I don't know whether, I think we're at the beginning maybe of that. So things like the National Marine Park in Plymouth, who I, who I work with, that's focused on a really social framing of the human-ocean relationship in Plymouth Sound and how how that can be sustainable and meaningful and you know promote well-being and security which comes with economic prosperity and, and various other things so that kind of cross issue and cross sector and and so on that that kind of approach to the human ocean relationship but this is all this is all brand new so yeah i, I don't know i wonder Well, I didn't grow up by the sea, so I didn't have a personal relationship with it in that in that way. And yet, it came from somewhere. And it's really hard, isn't it? Because it's like personal growth, and it, it things change over your life. And um, and the way that I I think I, I, it's got more complicated. So probably when I was doing things like marine biology, I had more idealistic, probably more simplistic views of what environmental action is or should be, and what we should be doing. I knew all about climate change. Some people say, oh, I never learned that at school. And I'm like, I mean, I did. I was learning that at primary school in like the 80s. So this has been on the curriculum for a real, I don't think I was a really like amazing progressive primary school. So uh, people have been learning that for a long time. So I definitely knew about all those things and cared about them. Coming through politics and loving fishing, honestly. I'm vegetarian. I wasn't interested in fishing. I've done so much random research on fishing. I'm now vice chair on the IFCO and seven and seven and up but I find it fascinating because it's just such a an amazing intersection between the natural environment and people in so many different framings it's really complicated for just this little little stretch of water around around the coast and I, I think that's probably changed like a lot the nuance and um the gray between idealism and I know it frustrates people who are really passionate environmentalists they feel why can't you just it's so logical why can't you just do it and I'm like, well, no, actually. And the other thing is to think a lot about, I reflect a lot more on like my own positionality. So my work around human ocean transformation is absolutely value-laden, like completely so far from being objective in terms of its goals. And I think it's really important to admit that. And I think that doesn't always happen in research that you're saying, actually, this is the right thing to do because science, no, it's, it's the right thing to do because that's your ethical framing and your your this is what this goes back to what I was saying about natural scientists and positivism and actually 
uh, a little more reflection on on what we're trying to achieve and why and being open about that and then like all sort of political action it's a battle and people will feel differently so yeah that that's changed definitely you spend much time by the sea yeah i snorkel so i used to dive i used to dive in the northeast coast and um i haven't dived in quite a long time and i snorkel i go to south milton sands which is on Devon coast and I go there a lot it's amazing it has this big rock Dilston rock and like a, a rocky reef so it has this sort of like still lagoon with an amazing berm so it's like suddenly deep but not very deep and then it's flat again but it's fantastic it's always so still no matter how windy it is you could probably paddleboard almost always you could paddleboard there if you wanted to um so it's great for snorkeling but I, I love it because we go for years we've been going and I go all through the year and it's always different so I'm always like this is where the Shannies live and this is the sea was really different this year. And oh, there's loads of sargassa and all, you know, and I really enjoy learning that space. So I do a snorkel other places and we bodyboard and do other kinds of things in the sea. But I, I enjoy that um looking at it changing in the same place. I've seen great pipefish and conger eels and all sorts there, which is always more exciting than a, a whizzing by rats which is what you mostly see or tiny little fish that i don't even know what they are whether they're babies or something else where did you learn to dive i learned at university so i was in the dive club at newcastle university and it was one of the key things i was going to do my granny died when i was in my year out for working for i went to university and i got 500 pounds inheritance and i was like i'm gonna buy a dive computer with it that's what i'm gonna do and i've got my dive kit and a dive computer and we dived quite a bit um, and I dived in New Zealand once, which is the only time I've dived abroad for an overseas project. And we were going to go to the Poor Nights, which was supposed to be like the best dive in the world, but it was midwinter and it was too stormy. So we never got to do that. And I've dived on the west coast of Scotland, which was pretty sweet as well. Um, but yeah, it's been a long time. A long time. I said, oh, it's 10 years since I've dived. It's actually now 20. So that's really sad. <laughs> I have a, one last strange question. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is, do you sometimes dream about either your research or about marine environment? Oh God, I dream about marine environments all the time. Uh, so can I, can I really tell you about my dreams? I love talking about these dreams. So when I was, this is the most profound marine dream I ever had. When I was a teenager and I was doing my levels and, and look at universities and I'd applied to Newcastle to do marine biology and I decided at the last minute that I was going to take a year out I, I can't even remember now I was really anxious suddenly and I could still in the end I secured my place um, and I went you know just deferred it a year but while I was going through that stuff I had this dream that I was uh, at the sea and I, it was like a, it was like a big a sort of hill like a sandy hill like a beach hill but that doesn't make sense it's a dream and 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 there were like rocks that went out like cliffs that went out to the side so it was a sort of you know, a cove, a sort of squarish cove of sea. And I was sat up there and I was looking down and the sun was playing on the water and all these people were in it and they were having this amazing time. And there was, I was just like, oh, this is, this is so fantastic. There's all this lovely stuff. And I wonder what's around the corner. I have really metaphorical dreams. What's around the corner? 
And then I sat there and I started dipping my toes in the water. And I was oh, another stupid metaphor. And I woke up and I was like, it is the sea. It is the sea I want to do. And I was trying to decide between arts and stuff. Maybe that's when I had it. Um, and then I decided to do marine biology. And the other one, I had another one like that, which I had forgotten about completely, which was, I think, in, it came up on like my Facebook memories or something the other day, a while back. It was from something like 2014 when I was made redundant and before I knew I was going to do this stuff. Um, and I, and the dream was something like, um, again, looking down at the ocean and there were all these different things. People were like beach cleaning and there was fishing and there were all these things happening. And in my head, in the dream, I was like, oh, how amazing that everyone is, you know, sharing the space and then being sustainable and taking care of it. And that was before I knew I was going to do this. PhD on marine citizenship that was totally all about all of those things. My like recurring stress dream is um, not exactly drowning, but but being up to my neck in water. So metaphorical, being up to my neck in water, and like there being quite big waves and trying to kind of work out how to get out of it. But I can't be the only one that has a a recurring metaphorical dream, anxiety dream that's uh, water based. So. <laughs> So that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening to the Vise at Sea podcast. This podcast was developed by Sonia Levy and Ellis Jones with support from the Economic and Social Research Council via the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership.